You're listening to the sermon podcast from House for All Sinners and Saints. We are an evangelical Lutheran church in America congregation in Denver, Colorado. And you can find out more about us at www.houseforall.org. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours in the name of the triune God. Can everyone hear me back in the back? No? Okay. Let's get it up a little bit. Better? Okay. Um, Today in parishes across the country and around the world, uh, churches, many churches are celebrating the Feast of St. Francis. And in honor of Francis's earthly, earthy spirituality, uh, church buildings and gardens and parks uh, today have filled with dogs and cats and hamsters and fish and other pets in this popular practice called the blessing of the animals. Yet over the course of this week, as the tragic events unfolded, like the execution of Kelly Gissendanner, and the massacre in Oregon, I started to feel extremely grateful that the blessing of of the animals is not a current practice of our congregation. The thought of having to pay attention to pets, and I love pets, I have pets, they're really important to me, but the, the thought of having to pay attention to pets seemed to me like a frivolous luxury in light of the human blood spilled in our country over the last few days, weeks, and months. When I'm straining to see the light of God among people, focusing on pets strikes me as a convenient way to play the hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil game. But then to add fuel to the fire, today's gospel reading in which Jesus comes down hard on divorce, this reading seemed to me also ill-fitted to breathe a word of life into the chaos and confusion of our land. Both pets and divorce initially seemed to me more like topics you'd discuss when you have nothing else better to talk about. And like this week, we have real problems, real human problems of life and death. So I was tempted to dispense with all of it. I didn't think there was any kind of connection between animals, divorce, and the whole mess that we're in. But a few days ago, as I was sitting in my despair over the nation's violence and what to preach, I was surprised when, in just one brief glance, my cat told me everything that I need to know about today's gospel. Bear with me, I'm not crazy. (laughs) Not totally. Anyhow, as I looked across the room, I noticed that Janet, yeah, my cat's name is Janet, (laughs) was curled up completely inside of a a pair of pants that I had just worn. I thought it was strange, but I had noticed that this had happened before. Uh, Janet is prone to sleep in my clothes when I'm really busy and I can't pay attention to her or when I've been away from the house for a long period of time. At first, my cat's behavior really weirded me out. I thought it was creepy. I mean, if you slept in your partner's clothing every time they're inattentive or (laughs) away from home, well, that'd be really freaky. So I did some research to find out why my cat is a freak, and I discovered that her behavior reflects the way that cats experience, all cats experience their self. 
You know, we humans tend to see ourselves as something distinct from the world around us. I end where my body ends. There's a sharp and absolute divide between me and not me. Cats, researchers think, though, have an understanding of their self that extends out into the world around them. For cats, it's almost as if we, their human companions, are part of themselves. So when we're not paying attention to them, or when we're gone, it's like a part of their own body is missing. Therefore, they go looking for the things that carry our scent. They go looking for us. Or rather, they go, they go looking for the part of themselves that is us. Cats aren't alone, though, in having a collective sense of self. Almost all animals behave like this, as if their self somehow extends out into their community and world around them. But unlike most of creation, we humans have the strange tendency to think of ourselves as individuals, as somehow separate from the lives of our fellow humans. I am me, you are you, and never the twain shall meet. Yet in today's gospel, Jesus takes issue with the human tendency to separate. The question at hand is about divorce. Jesus comes down hard on the practice. Excuse me. Um, Jesus says when a couple marries, they become one flesh. And then Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. The disciples don't like this answer, and so they ask Jesus again. This time, Jesus comes down even harder. He equates divorce with adultery. Jesus intensifies this earlier law. So, therefore, over the years, this passage has often been understood by the church as an absolute and binding law from the mouth of Jesus. But what if Jesus isn't intensifying the divorce law in order that we avoid divorce in all circumstances? What if Jesus intensifies the divorce law to demonstrate the human tendency to divide people into good or bad? What if Jesus is doing here what he always does, which is makes it impossible for us to see ourselves as separate and distinct from the things we seek to condemn and the people we seek to shun and expel from our communities. I know I commonly have the thought that my community would be better off without X person or Y person. I think my community would be better off without homophobes, without right-wing Republicans, without supporters of the death penalty, without members of the NRA. However, in today's gospel, Jesus uses the question of divorce to show us that when we expel people from our community, we aren't just keep kicking out some other disconnected from ourselves. We are also removing a part of us. Jesus shows us that we cannot remove people from our world without somehow diminishing who we are. That when we define someone else as evil, we also define ourselves as the same. So if we go back to the story, and, but take a look along with it at first century Jewish divorce law, we find that it was exclusively built upon the right of a husband to define his wife as somehow evil. Divorce law was meant to restrict the many ways a husband could accuse his wife, but nonetheless, divorce was by definition a way of separating women out from the community 
on the basis of having lost her goodness. A husband could divorce his wife for more obvious things like adultery, but also for the way she prepared her husband's food, for going out on the street with unkempt hair, or even if she gained weight or otherwise physically changed such that the husband was no longer attracted to her. Clearly, in Jesus' culture, divorce was never a mutual decision by a couple to end a living arrangement that is no longer mutually life-giving. No, divorce was the exclusive right of a man. In fact, the word divorce itself is a misleading translation because in Hebrew, the word means the sending away of the woman. There was no word for sending away of a husband. Therefore, a more appropriate translation of what Jesus is talking about would be shunning or exile, which is often what ended up happening. A man, having become dissatisfied with his wife, would hand the wife a certificate of divorce. Sometimes, but often not, there would be a hearing. And then the community would drive her off, often with her children, to a life of poverty and isolation on the margins of society. The woman would then be forever known as a gerusha, the woman thrown out. So when Jesus decrees that the mere act of giving a certificate of divorce renders one an adulterer, he makes it impossible to draw a clear distinction between good and evil. Like he does throughout the Gospels, Jesus overturns the ways that we humans base our relationships with each other on separation and difference. Jesus assaults the human tendency to separate and isolate because, as he said, separation and isolation are not the ways of God. God is in the business of bringing together and never in the business of driving apart. From the perspective of God, the line between you and me between us and others is forever moving in the direction of unity to the point of our very bodies melding together. And when we begin to see that we are not self-contained entities, that myself is also a part of yourself, it becomes harder to see you as evil and see myself as good. When God shows us that our bodies are not the limit of our identity, but the beginning of an identity that flows from us to our neighbors, to our enemies, and finally into, into the body of Christ. It becomes harder to do things like walk into a school and kill eight people. It becomes harder to put lethal drugs into the vein of a woman who plotted to kill her husband. It becomes harder to hate the one who pulls the trigger and kills the eight people. It becomes harder to hate the one who administers the lethal injection. All the ways that we separate the world into good and evil collapse at the command of Christ. Because in Christ we are all one flesh. And so tonight when we go to the table, like the millions who have gone before us, God brings us a little bit closer into this new way of being where me and not me disappear, where you and me become one, and where God draws all of us, without exception, into the heart of Christ, into the heart of Christ's unending body of grace. Amen.